Ooh, look out. We're having fun now. A LaCroix has been opened. An icy cold apricot LaCroix in the sweltering garage. LaCroix, America's choice for when you don't want to drink sugar and when you're taking a break from alcohol and you just want something refreshing and cold and fizzy and flavorful when you get home, but without the without all the consequences. That's that's right, America's LaCroix. Well, doggone it, guys. Last week was kind of a heavy one. And, you know, I'm goodness sakes, this show's practically defined by being heavy. And so I thought we'd take a little break and do something, do an offshoot episode uh, where I'm going to discuss 10 motion pictures that were meaningful that I watched this year. And uh, I've just got a... Uh, oh, that's, that's odd. There's someone, someone at the door. One second here. Well, sir, uh, I'm afraid you're in a bit of trouble. Let me introduce myself. My name is uh, Agent Woke. I'm from the internet. Okay, Agent Agent Woke from the internet. Uh, my goodness, I didn't know the internet had agents. Uh, how how can I help you? Well, sir, may I ask uh, may I ask what you were doing here? What you, what you planning on doing with all that with the microphone and the tapes all above you and the and your fancy notebooks all around? May I ask what exactly your intention was? Um, certainly. I, I do a weekly podcast. I was planning on doing one about some films I've seen this year that I really enjoyed. Uh, let me stop you right there, sir. See, now there's a couple of problems I see in front of me. First of all, is that, uh, you're a white male, is that correct? Of the Caucasian descent? Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah, Caucasian. Yeah, just generic white person. Just as I thought, sir. And, uh, by any chance... Is your podcast about to be, uh, the thing you were discussing is, it is about movies, is that correct? Yeah, I th I'm pretty sure I mentioned that, but yeah, I was going to talk about some films I've seen uh, this year that, that were really meaningful to me and that, that I thought were artistic and beautiful, and uh, just some details about the directors and, and encouraging people to go uh, watch these or seek these out, because they're maybe not necessarily the biggest, most popular movies in the world, but I, I want people to see them because they're great. Everything that you're saying is disgusting to me, sir. Uh, may, may I run some statistics past you, or, or actually ask you some questions in the form of statistics? Uh, yeah, if that's... Uh, am, I, am I in trouble here? Is this relevant? First, do you know the amount of podcasts in the year 2018 that are run by white males who think they're interesting, who think they're funny, and they're between the ages of uh, 22 and 45? And specifically, the topic every week is that they talk about movies. Uh... Well, I, I mean, I yeah, I, I realize there's a lot of them. Uh, there's probably a handful, maybe a couple hundred. Oh, a couple hundred? We'd be living in a dream world if it was a couple hundred. A couple hundred would be nice. My job would be manageable. Uh, you have to, pardon me, sir. It's been, it's been a bit of a long day. Uh, but but you're quite incorrect there because the real number is uh, actually 350,000. Uh, no, pardon me. Uh, three, yeah, 350,000, yes. That's how many podcasts exist that are run by white males that are talking about movies. And these are all young men who think they're funny, who think they're interesting, who think that they have something unique to contribute to the conversation. And they're dead wrong, sir. I'm here to tell you that they're dead wrong. My God, 350,000. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a lot of noise. Um, that is uh, that that is a lot of, of white guys discussing movies, isn't it? Uh, beginning to question what I'm doing here. Ah, that's what we were looking for, sir. Wanted you to go ahead and question what you're passionate about. Go ahead and second guess the importance of doing something like this. Go ahead and second guess the very fact that you uh, <laughs> call yourself a director sometimes. <laughs> Just go ahead and uh, take all that negative energy, go ahead and dwell on it for a little longer. And, and while you're thinking about what you've done and about what you're about to not do, which is do another podcast about movies and add to this pile of garbage that I have to deal with on a daily basis, is uh, I'm just going to write you out a nice, friendly ticket here, sir. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see your, I see your pad and your pen and everything there, man. Uh, 
what's uh, is, is this a fine or do I need to go to court, like internet court or something? No, sir. On this charge, that won't be necessary. This is a first count offense. We just write you a little warning, little ticket. Well, it's not a warning because it does have a penalty fee. Uh, the penalty fee is uh, is thirty five dollars. And uh, I'm, I'm losing my accent. I'm so frustrated about this. But here's, I'm just going to write you up a nice ticket. And then uh, you pay that and you discontinue the podcast forever. And you and you just keep on believing all the negative, bad, uh, toxic stuff. I think that's the main word lately is all the toxic garbage that your mind's believing. Just start going, uh, I've completely lost track of the accent here. Anyway, here's your ticket, sir. And uh, I'll just be on my way. And, and you have a nice day, okay? All right. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll walk you to the door here. Ah, oh, goodness. Sorry. I should probably lock the door when I start these. Um, well, I've got a, I've got here in front of me a ticket from the internet that I need to go pay. It says uh, write checks payable to Twitter. That seems fitting, I suppose. Uh, well, I'm going to carry right along. And our first choice for... And this will maybe periodically happen. Um... Because movies matter a lot to me. I do want to be a director. I'm writing my own stuff, whatever. Uh, but so it, it feels like it feels like I don't have anyone to talk about movies with. And it's not so dissimilar from talking about literature or something. I don't know. It's it's just something I'm why why do I have to explain it? Why do I have to explain it away? I already got berated once by the internet cop first up on the list a movie called silence from 2016 directed by martin scorsese whoo boy what a humdinger it's about three hours um and it is about christian missionaries in uh goodness sakes 13th century japan and it is a bleak long uh existential monster that it, you know, when you hear the premise, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that wasn't a hit. Big surprise. Um, but for understandable reasons, uh, it was kind of a passion project of Martin Scorsese's, and it ended up uh, not doing real well in the theaters. Don't think it even recouped his budget ultimately. But what does that matter? He was passionate about it. It's a beautiful story that he had wanted to tell for years. There's there's interviews about it on YouTube. I don't know. It's just such a brutally honest take on faith and about questions of belief and even that that part of the movie kind of snuck up on me where I didn't realize that was such a prominent element and that actually uh, it, it raises a lot of questions but in the end it isn't necessarily uh, bleak it's kind of hopeful that's not exactly a spoiler I'm talking more like the the existential ideas that it presents, the theological ideas um, of doubt and faith and what we would do for our faith and how far we would take it. I mean, it's for those kind of questions, it is harrowing um, because you just walk out with this dismal sense of like, oh man, uh, I have had it so easy and other people have suffered enormously um, in the name of Jesus. And would I go that far? I do not know. But those are the kind of fun, popcorn-eating questions that you'll enjoy in Martin Scorsese's silence, which was as as dark and heavy as I make it sound. I mean, it it is, and it's there are torture scenes that are very hard to get through. Uh, I cried a lot. I mean, it just puts your face in misery. But all the while with this like daunting question of belief and how much these missionaries can take. I mean, just what a weird story to tell from the guy who did Wolf of Wall Street and all these gangster movies, Casino and Goodfellas and Mean Streets and stuff. Um, and yet somehow this beautiful story of belief and uncertainty and not knowing and uh, but also like conviction and hope and endurance. Somehow that's the story he wanted to tell at this age and in this time. And I, I just think that's, it's really neat to see a director take a big left turn that is not going to be popular. It's not going to make money. It is kind of um, weirdly self-indulgent, or at least that it's like the story that they've been meaning to tell for so long. 
And I, I love the commitment to just do that, knowing that it would commercially be a failure, essentially, uh, because that just isn't the point, you know? And goodness, it's hard to not, it's hard to not make it the point, but it's not the point. Moving right along to something a little more fun. Uh, Brawl in Cell Block 99. Have you heard of this? It's uh, from 2017, directed by S. Craig Zoller, who was for a long time an author of kind of genre-blending um, like horror and westerns and western horrors and police stories that were especially brutal. And uh, his first film... Well, for one thing, Kurt Russell uh, had found his fiction work and liked it enough to do a movie with him, essentially. His first movie he did in his early 40s, this guy, um, in 2015 or so. And it was Bone Tomahawk, which was a just a delight. It's like an extremely slow burn Western with great characters... Uh, just a very compelling story and no scary stuff until all of a sudden it just degrades into, or not degrades, but spirals into this extremely violent, horrifying story of cannibals in the wilderness. And it's just, it's so jarring. It feels like, it feels like going along in a dream and then being dropped into a nightmare. So anyway, that's a great movie too. You should seek it out if you haven't heard of it. Uh, but Brawl in Cell Block 99, it didn't seem like it got much attention or much awareness. And I mean, this guy is a newer director, but I just feel like the only two things he's directed have been really well received by the small few that see them. I would say not small few, but they're definitely cult movies. Um, and you do sort of have to seek them out. I mean, anyway. But Brawl in Cell Block 99, it's got Vince Vaughn. And Jennifer Carpenter, she was uh, Deborah in Dexter, if you watched that show. Very good actress. And uh, in C Brawl in Cell Block 99, <laughs> it's so hard to describe. It's such a bizarre movie that it's almost like, how could someone write a story about this? Um, Vince Vaughn is just this average Joe tough guy. He happens to be... <laughs> incredibly strong, almost like weirdly superhumanly strong, even though this movie just exists in the real world, so to speak. Um, he gets in trouble for some small petty crime for like standing up for justice and being, beating a guy up and, uh, within the first few minutes of the movie. And then he gets arrested, caught, whatever. And the sentence ends up being somewhat severe. So he's put in jail for seven years, and during this time, some bad dudes kidnap his pregnant wife, and they're like, you can't get out, or uh, we're going to kill her and your baby, unless you get yourself into maximum security prison and kill this one specific guy that we want dead. So Vince Vaughn's already screwed. He's in regular prison. He's miserable. But these guys are like, you basically need to downgrade your own prison sentence into maximum security by achieving by bad behavior uh and then you need to go kill this guy and then you're just stuck and screwed in maximum security uh but at least your wife gets to live so it's just this you know ridiculous concept that is just it takes it so seriously with just the right note of like we know this is insane and there again, a uh, very good story, great characters. Vince Vaughn kills it, didn't know he had that in him. And then the, the last 30 or 40 minutes is just this, like, special effects dream, like practical bone-crunching effects dream if you like horror and gore. It's just very creative ways that people are dying where it just sort of turns a corner, the film does, and it's like, okay, here's where we're going to be silly and, and have some fun, even though it's still serious, but it's just like, we're going to get ridiculous with these deaths of these guys in prison who you just want to see Vince Vaughn destroy. Uh, and he does. And uh, it's got a great finish. So I just appreciate this director, and he's doing another one. Uh, he's working on it now. The filming is already 
might be done. I don't know. Anyway, he's doing one with Mel Gibson about police brutality, and I, I have uh, high hopes for that, that it will be more of the same. <laughs> so anyway, just such an interesting guy. I would say the pacing and balance of his film is of his two films are really unconventional. They're unique, and they sort of intentionally throw the audience off, which is always delightful to be pleasantly surprised when you're already enjoying something, but then it takes a turn that you were not seeing. And it, it's just, it's unconventional in the, in the realm of most of what else is being made today, as far as story structure and like, um, where to place a climax. It's really interesting. It's made me think, you know, think differently about th playing with plot structure and playing with climaxes and things like that. Anyway, it's delightful. Go watch it. Bada bing. Number three, plot twist, Moonstruck, 1987, directed by Norman Jewison, six Oscar nominations, three wins, including Best Actress for the musician Cher. Excuse me? Are you reading me something from an alternate dimension? No, my friends, this happened. Moonstruck is an unbelievably great movie. It is, <laughs> so we've got, it's a, it's a romantic comedy with Cher and Nicolas Cage, a super young, hairy Nicolas Cage with like stark, gorgeous blue baby boy eyes and his, his tousel of, of hair. And he's just so handsome and young. And it's like, oh, Nicholas, yes, this was before you destroyed your career. Um, you were doing such great things. Why didn't you stay adorable and normal? Um, this movie shouldn't work. And as a 30-year-old male, I mean, I, I know that sounds weird. I'm just not into romantic comedies. Not, you know, I've tried them. I can't do it. I, I'd like to try to appreciate all types of movies. That's not one of them. I just, I can endure it, but I'm not like, yippity doo -dah, Let's do another one of those immediately. Uh, but this one, along with a very select few of others, I would say Sleepless in Seattle would be in there. Um, about time is a good one. Anyway, Moonstruck. It was a famous movie for its time, but I just don't know necessarily if it's trickled down to you because movies have a way of, you know, just getting lost in the past and, and we only focus on the new stuff that's on Netflix that is mostly devoid of meaning at all. But hey, let's calm down. Moonstruck is this just warm family film that gets, that gets a little risque. It just plays around. There's some affairs. There's some sleeping around. But it's all very innocent. And they don't show anything. It's all suggested. Um, but it's just about this quirky Italian family and this goofy brother of the man that Cher is going to marry. And they're, it's, it's just... It's flawless from start to finish. Every scene is so intentional. The comedy is spot on. It still works 30 years later. And uh, it's just like, I don't know if there's another film scenario in which I could really enjoy Cher. But somehow this one works quite well. Nicolas Cage has a few, but mostly he's a crazy person. Who now it seems like he's taking anything they'll throw at him. Um, and they all have that weird generic shine on the poster of like extreme over photoshopping. And his, his looks, he looks too weirdly young and like his teeth are whitened. It's like, Nicholas, Nicholas, you don't have to put on this facade of like that you're still the young top dog. You're not, man. <laughs> um, but you're wonderful and we like what you do, Nick. Just choose what makes sense. Choose what's beautiful and artful. Not these goofy, like washed up cop stories that just don't work anymore, man. <sighs> okay. Have you heard of a movie called Good Time? It's by A24. Also came out last year. 2017, the year of our Lord. Good Time was directed by the Safdie brothers. I think I'm pronouncing that cor uh, correctly. It's got Robert Pattinson. And it is this gritty story of two brothers, one of whom is has a hearing... Um, impairment and is also somehow men mentally disabled or just um, 
possibly autistic. They don't really specify, but you you can tell early on that just something is very different about his cadence and the look in his eyes, and there's sort of like a vacancy there. But you you very quickly feel uh, sympathy for this character. Like you feel you feel the sense that they have had a rough life, and that this is someone who you just you want to protect, and you are already feeling uneasy five minutes into this movie because you're like, please don't let anything bad happen to that guy. And guess what? Some pretty rough shit happens to that guy. And it is just... uh, This movie rips you up, man. Robert Pattinson is the brother who's kind of this, like, um, white guy rapper looking, almost just this, like, kind of white trash street kid who, again, you can tell he's just got like funky hair, not too put together, looks kind of strung out almost, and just like he's had a rough go of it. Uh, he, you know, and so the whole movie is just one thing after another going wrong. The basic premise is that they have to steal, they have to do this like very lo fi bank robbery in order to pay off some debt and like get, get out of the city that they live in and and start a new life together and they have to run from these criminals and it's just a series of one thing after another going wrong um do you remember how in gravity with sandra bullock it just one thing after another it was almost like the the writers were having an invention day of like what thing can we put in here to go wrong next and like who can solve the puzzle of keeping this story going while throwing in another obstacle that is good time nothing ever goes right. It's like a Cormac McCarthy novel. It's just, we're starting at the bottom, page one, and then this book is, or this film is actually like a descent. It's a staircase into further madness, and it does not give you a minute to rest. And that is some visceral cinema, baby. So yeah, good time is great. Nice and stressful, um, but very good writing. It's got a weird tone and look to it. It's got great music. Um, and it's just like this sort of exciting, makes you want to feel alive because you're just, you're being ripped to pieces in your heart. I mean, it's a good feeling. It's a sad feeling, but it's also like, hey, let's, let's be glad our lives are not uh, looking like this currently. Then we got a movie called A Ghost Story. Oh man, pleasant surprise, a ghost story. Tiny little movie, very low budget. Uh, I think it was like $1 million. Super small cast. I believe there's uh, only three people in the whole movie. It's uh, directed by David Lowry, came out last year, and it's got Casey Affleck, Rooney Mara. They're the main people in the whole movie. And it's just about, it's this, uh, it is the, I told my friend Andy, who told recommended that I watch this, it is the movie equivalent of ambient instrumental music, like this post-rocky, mellow stuff. I know there's a thousand words for it now. Sorry, I'm getting the terminology wrong. Drone, whatever, you know what I mean. Instrumental music that's long and drawn out. It makes you wait for the crescendo, if there is one at all. Sometimes it's just one note, so to speak, not literally one note, but uh, it's, it takes its time and you have to be patient with it and that you kind of have to be the sort of person that can even enjoy that sort of thing and slow down enough to respect the pace of it and not get impatient. That's a ghost story. A ghost story is like a 90-minute symphony on screen. They shot it in this really interesting aspect ratio to where it's essentially a square. So when you're watching it on widescreen, the two big chunks on either side are, are black. And it's a square and it's even got this sort of rounded soft edge on the corners to make it look, to me, I think the effect was like a, to look like an old photograph. And even the color palette and the, the grade on it, the, the like film grade effect or overlay, just makes it feel very old, even though it's present day, presumably. And it's hard to describe what this is. It's very slow. It's very patient. There's not a lot of dialogue. But it's just like this... Oh, and by the way, this director 
his previous movie was Pete's Dragon, the big Disney extravaganza. I didn't see it. I'd never, I didn't like the original of that story. So it just didn't really interest me. But um, he, within a week of, of finishing Pete's Dragon, he was off shooting a ghost story. So it's almost like very um, prolific director who can just go from gigantic budget, colorful, happy Disney movie that probably has tons of eyes on it. And like, you don't have a lot of creative control, I would imagine. And it's like, you're, you're riding on Disney's money and they're riding on you to make more money. It's just that, that would feel very out of control to me. That would feel like almost having a ball and chain, but I don't know, maybe it's great. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm too dismal about things like that. But anyway, it's just interesting. He goes from that to a ghost story, which is as simple as can be. Um, there's just a dash of special effects at the end, but otherwise it's just a story about people pretty much all takes place in this one house. And it's just an exploration on death, on love and the enduring nature of human relationships, on um, even memory and the passage of time. That's a big one where it's just, it's presenting this idea that, or, or a reminder, like a pretty stark reminder that we will pass away and not only our bodies and this present life, but are the memory of us, the memory of us and what we did and our accomplishments and what we built and what we thought mattered. Even those are just utterly erased. And this movie is able to communicate that not in a way that's just like, uh, trying to rub your nose in the dirt and just be like, you're going to die and we're all just done for and none of this matters. It's not that at all. It's much more lovely. It's almost, I would say, like a peaceful reminder, uh, a stark and honest one, but a peaceful, beautiful, gentle reminder that like, hey, none of us are going to last the way that we think we are. And even the memory of us will be gone so quickly. And that's okay. That really is okay. Because it's not going to matter to us to matter <laughs> uh, beyond the point. And, and I hope, you know, that shouldn't be a depressing idea. That shouldn't be a saddening idea. Because we have right now. And this can be lovely and good. But those are the kind of questions that a ghost story brings up. Highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, it's a patient one. You have to be, you have to be prone to those kind of movies already, or you have to take the exercise of doing this movie. And there is one scene in particular while you're, where you'll be like, how, how it's like you go into a trance for a while and then you come out of it in this weird hypnotic state. And when you come back, the same scene is still happening. And you're like, how did they get away with this? How is this actress continuing to do what she's doing? And it's nothing, um, well, it is weird. It's nothing inappropriate, but it's just like uh, the, law, the, the length that they hold on this one shot is you start to feel like you're going insane or like you've entered some alternate realm where this movie is never going to end and that you might actually be stuck there. I mean, it, 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 it is so jarring and like nothing else I don't think I've seen in a movie where it's just like, let me show you how long I'm going to make you wait and watch this. <laughs> and then when you get through it, you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, that was something. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I could wait that long. It involves pie. I'll tell you that. So you'll know it when you see it. It's great. And next we have Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, from 1981 by George Miller. If you can't tell, I really enjoy going back and forth from these very fancy art house, like refined, you know, just, not, I'm just talking like non-blockbuster, uh, and I'm not opposed to those either, but I, t I go back and forth between the fancy art films and just the silliest, most ridiculous, um, over-the-top action and, and, you know, like sci-fi movies and horror and stuff. Because it's good to mix up your palette, I think, 
And both of them can teach you something. Even if you're extremely serious, the silly movies can teach you something. Even if you're extremely silly, the serious movies can teach you something. And everything in between. And they can teach you something about life. They can teach you about writing. That's the big one for me, is I feel like movies are my um, schooling in writing. So anyway, how'd I get to that? Anyway, Mad Max is a silly movie. I'd never seen it. All these on this list, this is my first time seeing them. And they've, they've uh, for, at least in the case of the older ones, they had just always been on my radar as something that I would see a pop up on lists or someone would mention it on a podcast or uh, maybe I saw the poster as a kid or the VHS box in, the, in Blockbuster as a kid. And just always remembered that and even remembered little details about it like Oscar stuff or, or if, if it just seemed to be around for a long time in the video stores that it would just stick in my brain as like, oh, that's one that for some reason a lot of people are t- paying attention to. I want to see that. And in some cases, like with Mad Max, it took me till I was 30 years old to get around to it. Um, there's a lot of little ones like that. Let's see. Let's, 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 let's take a peek over at the VHS wall and tell you some of these movies I've never seen that I've been meaning to get to. This will just be rapid fire round. Uh, Jerry Maguire, never seen it. Uh, we got, uh, we got Working Girl with Sigourney Weaver and Harrison Ford and Melanie Driver, I think. Nope. Correction, it was Melanie Griffith. I think I got mixed up and was thinking of Mini Driver. Like an idiot. Working Girl, 1980s, like weird little office comedy about, you know, a a girl who stands up for herself. I don't really know the premise. I've always wanted to see it. I don't know. It just interests me. Uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Robin Williams, never seen it. On the list. Let's see. Just a couple more. Just a couple more. Uh, We got... Short Circuit. It's got a robot in it. How have I not seen that? I need to see all the robot things. And lastly, we've got uh, Platoon. Platoon. Never seen it. Always been curious. Not the biggest war movies guy. But it's just like, no, that was an important movie for some reason. And I want to see it. And I want to learn from it. Maybe it'll show up on a future list. But let's continue. 1968, George A. Romero, Night of the Living Dead, baby. I had never seen it. An occult horror classic. Holy smokes, this movie was great. Um, maybe you've seen it. Maybe you're way ahead of the curve on, than me. Maybe you've never heard of it. Maybe you've heard about it and you're like, eh, horror, that's not for me. Let me tell you, this is horror with some class. And while there are moments that are somewhat violent, it is the violence of 1968. And it, it's, um, you know, you can see the sort of prop effects that they did to do it. And so it, if, uh, if you're squeamish about zombies and people being eaten, I mean, this is pretty tame. I think you could handle it. And the weird thing is is that even though it was just this weird, low-budget little movie that had no business necessarily taking off and becoming a cult sensation that plays to sold-out showings to this day in little art house cinemas for like midnight showings. Some places do it on Halloween. I mean, people keep coming back uh, 50 years later for this movie. That is really rare. That's extremely rare, especially for it to be in theaters. Um, sure, people could seek it out online, but for people to go to a theater and re-watch a movie they've seen from this long ago is a testament to the fact that this thing holds up. So, some of you have... have Anyway, whatever, whatever. Some of you are well aware of this movie and you know how great it is. I, you're right, I'm here. Sorry I'm late to the party, man. But yeah, it's a zombie movie. It's got, uh, for now, for the time, this was really very uncommon. A movie by a white director, it had a black protagonist, a black male protagonist who befriends a young woman, a young blonde woman, 
And there is some mild romantic tension, but the nice thing is that was not the point of the movie is to throw in some stupid romance thing as if every movie is about a woman falling for a man. No, this is, I mean, a black protagonist, an African-American protagonist in 1968, that was really uncommon. That was a statement for then. You know, this was uh, in the in the time also of like Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry pushing race and, and being a proponent for having diversity on screen. Anyway, just this was really rare at this time. Hollywood was super white. Everything was whitey, white, white. And if there was a black actor in a movie, they weren't going to be the lead, dude. They'd probably be a villain, unfortunately. They'd probably be a poor person on a farm. I mean, not universally, but I'm just saying the the that era of Hollywood, this is where it was at. So it's it's so cool that George A. Romero chose that and just that this great old movie just has that other element of I, I don't know, forward thinking, I think and diversity and, and breaking out of bar- barriers, breaking out of the bonds of like the norm of cinema. So, you know, apart from the zombie stuff, it's really just this great survival movie. Most of the movie, you're not actually seeing zombies. They're kind of, mo- most of the movie takes place in this one house where they are barred up. They've, you know, got the, bo- uh, the doors boarded and they're just hiding from these zombies because this is a recent outbreak. This is in the days of just, you know, like three channels with news only in the evening and, and radios. And so every, you know, the, the way they find out about zombies is that they're being attacked in like the middle of nowhere and they, they hole up in this little country house. And it's just a survival story. It's a story about what humans do and how they interact when they're put under that pressure. And the dialogue is very strong. It's very, you know, it reads like a, a, a great Twilight Zone episode or like a very solid piece of fiction, uh, of literature. It's just really well-written, very compelling. It's, it's, it feels pr- uh, prevalent even in 2018 as far as the way people talked. Um, it just felt, sen- uh, it made sense. It had a humanness to it, which I think is, is largely why it has endured. And um, anyway, it's it's pretty amazing. So, if movies, if horror movies are not your thing, I would highly recommend Night of the Living Dead, as just when you're feeling in a weird mood for something offshoot and out of the ordinary. Uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how good it is. Just outside of the genre of cult horror, it's a really good story. Okay, this one. It's not the last on my list, uh, second to last. I think this is nine movies, not ten, but that's okay. I've talked enough. This will be plenty long, I guarantee. My favorite thing that I've seen this year, in theaters or out of theaters, this one happened to be in theaters, is First Reformed, directed by Paul Schrader. Uh, And this guy has been in the industry for a long time. He's directed a lot of stuff, but... Most notably, he's, he's more known for his writing. He wrote Taxi Driver, the film. He wrote Raging Bull. He wrote The Last Temptation of Christ, all of which Martin Scorsese ended up directing. But so, I mean, this guy's got some chops. And it's interesting listening to interviews about First Reformed is that he said something along, along the lines of just, I had to tell the crazy story that no one was willing to tell. And... Uh, you know, he is an older director in his 60s or 70s and just felt like at this time of life, almost like similar to Scorsese, really, with silence, that he needed to break out of what he had been doing, tell the story he had been, in a way, afraid to tell and just go for it and know that it might not be popular, know that it's controversial, it's heavy, it's uh, got big implications and that uh, it was a, a strange little story, but he decided it was the time to do it. And it's, it's incredible. It's, the story is about Ethan Hawke playing as this uh, chaplain of, a, of an old, a little old Catholic church in upstate New York, if I'm not mistaken. It's, it's in the course of the story, the first church to be built 
in the state of New York, and it's extremely old. It's like, I believe they're having the 250th year uh, celebration is a big piece of the plot, is that this church is so old, nobody attends it, hardly. It's still open every Sunday for services and for other church events, but nobody goes there. It's like five people, and Ethan Hawke is doing the mass over them, and it's just like, oh man, this is super awkward. Nobody's here, but they're still keeping this thing going. And uh, you just get that it's the sense that it's on its last leg. It's kind of a joke. Um, it's only being put in position there because it's so old and it's like a piece of history. But otherwise, it's just basically being paid for by the Catholic Church and and barely respected or paid attention to. It's just this sort of humble little church. And Ethan Hawke is a severely alcoholic chaplain. Um, much of the movie is him just drinking whiskey straight and having various doctor visits about how his health is deteriorating. And uh, that part is heavy. It is hard to watch. And, uh, and yet it just feels so brutally honest. It's not it's not hokey. It's not over the top. It's just like, this is a deeply hurting person who has nothing left that they enjoy except getting fucked up every single night in order to keep functioning. And yet even under that thread of alcoholism, uh, Ethan Hawke, who has had a, a rough life, you find out in the course of the story, um, he, he still has this sort of center of faith and he's questioning it. He's having trouble with the realities of the modern world and questioning if God really hears us, if God can really forgive us, if he's even there at all. And it's like this balance of recognizing that there's grace while he continues to act abhorrently and, or at, at the very least, like destroying himself actively not taking care of himself, not, uh, you know, just in denial, hiding. And it's heavy. It's deeply heavy. And it's, it's also slow moving, but it, not in the way that a ghost story is. Um, I, I was riveted. It, it did not feel slow at all because every moment is just so packed with this gravity of like, this man's life is, is hard and dark and it doesn't feel necessarily sinister, but it just feels like something is wrong in every shot, in every thing that they, that the director presents. And it did raise questions for me of faith. It did raise questions about our world. Uh, it's, there's a, there's a global warming fanatic, which sounds like a weird element which sounds like something that could potentially be corny or like easy to blow off or not take seriously. But um, in the context of the film, it works very well. It's very effective. It's very unsettling. And uh, yeah, Ethan Hawke just comes up against things that he doesn't understand. Similarly to the way that uh, Tommy Lee Jones character as a policeman in No Country for Old Men, he comes up against things that are new to him and frightening that rattle his perspective of the world. So that's kind of what's going on with first reformed. And, um, I just, I couldn't recommend it enough. It may not be your kind of movie. It is heavy. It, it may make you sad, maybe rightfully so. Um, but I think it's, it's beautiful and it's important and it raises some really interesting questions. This is the last one more of a fun one, uh, this little movie called Night Shift from 1982, directed by Ron Howard, in kind of a weird offshoot for him. Now, not to be confused with Night Shift, the collection of short stories by Stephen King, uh, horror short stories, notably, and they've made a few of those into movies that were all terrible. Um, there's some good Stephen King movies out there, Many of them are quite bad and they don't do justice to the work because his work is actually quite good for the most part. Anyhow, Night Shift is not that at all. It's a ridiculous premise 
This is 1982, and this feels crazy for today. The premise is that Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler decide to open a prostitution ring in the middle of the night in a hospital when everyone is off shift and the building is ent- uh, the building is empty and they decide to like create make that basically the the whorehouse or at least the hub for these prostitutes to go out and make money and then Henry Winkler and and Michael Keaton take a cut it's like what in the world what a bizarre premise and somehow this works i mean i i put it on thinking okay this might be so dumb and silly and just out of like out of key that it isn't going to be that it isn't going to work it's just too much of its time or like it was a bonkers idea to begin with and just you know maybe it's just a bad movie uh but no not at all and despite the fact that it's about hookers you know that it's about prostitutes it's pretty tame on the on the sexual side. Um, I don't think there's any nudity at all. There's some scantily clad stuff, but like the you know it's a comedy. It's not. It doesn't take it so far into that dark world. It's just sort of like this is ridiculous. You know, these two goofy guys decide to make a business that is absurd and illegal, but like somehow they kind of have this rapport and this relationship of protectiveness with the girls and like this funny banter it doesn't seem like it should work and it seems like it would be really crude, right? Like it would be this um, just heavy sex comedy that's just rough and like, but no, I mean, you know, Ron Howard, he's pretty tame. He, he tends to, I mean, it is rated R, I think for language and, and just for situational humor or whatever. But uh, anyway, it's a lot of fun. It's a weird offshoot. If you like Michael Keaton, he's been doing dope work lately uh, really good dramatic roles, but I don't know, people forget that he, or maybe they don't, he kind of disappeared for a while. You know, I know he was this comedy actor, then he was Batman, then he kind of was out of the limelight for a while until Birdman. I mean, I know he was in other things, but just didn't have any prominent roles. And now he's had this comeback later in life, which is really neat. But anyway, it's just, if you like current day Michael Keaton, it's fun to watch him before as a young peppy he's very eccentric very uh energetic and just has this charisma about him almost like a jack black or like a, a kevin hart or um everything every scene he's in he's just electric um or like a robin williams you know he just draws your eye anyway it's interesting to see him with that young pep and spirit and henry winkler is great very funny actor um he was the fawns on happy days for those of you young enough to maybe not know that but and also henry winkler was the family lawyer on arrested development i can't remember his name his character's name anyway henry winkler's great and this is a great role for him he plays this kind of mousy uh fidgety nervous guy who's like the the poindexter or like always worried about the the stats and the and keeping everything safe and he's worried about breaking the law and stuff and he's a great counterplay to Michael Keaton's uh, energetic like confidence. So anyway, weird little movie from the 80s, and it's great. And then just just briefly, a couple little um, I I guess we would call these uh, no bueno picks here, which were movies that were extremely bad, but still kind of enjoyable for their own charm of being bad. You know how sometimes movies can be so bad that they end up being good, like The Room or, you know, that's probably the most famous bad, good movie. So anyway, here's a couple real bad ones that still had moments of charm. First is uh, from 1996, The Island of Dr. Moreau. This was notably Marlon Brando's I don't believe it was his last film, but it, it was very close to... Actually, I think it was his last on-screen film. He did a voice for another 3D movie that never came out. Uh, some horrible, low-budget animated kids movie. It's kind of sad, actually. Anyway, this is this is Marlon Brando not on his game, man. Uh, and and his his uh, co-star in this is, is a young Val Kilmer. 
And this was this awkward uh, sci-fi thriller thing based off of an old, I believe it's H.G. Wells' short story, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is about this doctor who basically experiments, who who isolates himself on an island and kind of goes crazy and uh, starts playing with the genetic code of like melding uh, humans and animals and and just doing uh, creating his own monster ape creatures. And so, you know, it's like a weird sort of jungle adventure with some spooky elements. The original story is very tame, but they tried to make it into this um, almost like this, if this was in the era of like the Pierce Brosnan, James Bond movies. And it was, but this was pre matrix, but it was still when we were just kind of, realizing that uh, CGI could be used for goofy, colorful effects. Um, and this is just this hot mess of a movie that notoriously had all these production troubles. Uh, it went over budget, like shit went wrong. I think the first director got fired and this other guy had to pick it up. And there were, you know, it was over time, over budget. Uh, way underperformed. It was just ripped to pieces by critics. And still it's like, and yet some select few people went to see it because Marlon Brando was in it and he was still riding off of that Godfather stuff. I mean, you know, still respected as one of the greatest actors ever, but dude, he had basically three iconic roles and then he did a bunch of shitty movies, like bad movies and he was so checked out and just had a mess of a personal life. Anyway, it's just, it irks me a little bit that people put Marlon Brando on this pedestal and sure he's been in some great movies, but the dude was an asshole in regular life. Like, and he, he phoned it in on so many movies and just took a check and was like, I'm Marlon Brando. I don't have to try he didn't even memorize his lines for Superman 2. He read them off of a note that was pinned to baby Superman's diaper. That's a fact. Go look it up. He did not memorize his lines because he was that fucking lazy. Anyway, easy, Josh. Wow. Didn't mean to go after you there, Marlon. Uh, I hope you're having a nice time. Anyway, The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's fun because uh, 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 Ron Perlman... Plays a blind, um, sort of sage, half monkey, half man creature thing. And Ron Perlman's great. He's in so much makeup, you can hardly recognize him. And then uh, I don't know the actor's name, I forget, uh, but, the, but Professor Lupin has a, has a prominent role in that, which is interesting. I like that actor. So it's a weird one. I, I wouldn't seek it out other than to go on YouTube and watch a trailer and just be like, oh, God, how did this get made? Uh, and then we have another bad one that was somehow kind of good is the lawnmower man from 1992 quote unquote based off of a Stephen King short story, but it ended up being so wildly different and having nothing to do with that short story that Stephen King, uh, had them take his, uh, his name off of it, off the credits and remove it. Um, they got to keep the title but it has nothing to do with Stephen King's short story. It's this weird, like, VR experience movie where Pierce Brosnan is a scientist who's creating this weird 3D world, or, or no, 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 it's uh, through the 3D world, you put on these vision goggles and you, you learn things rapidly, almost in kind of a matrix sense of, like, uploading things to your brain. He's developing this technology where you get in a bodysuit and you go learn things and you become a superhuman, super smart thing. And it even starts out with like this battle training where a, a chimpanzee is wearing the VR headset and like battling tanks in a 3D world. Like this is how the movie begins. And it's not good 3D. It's like the hokey, um, super blocky N64 practically graphics. And they put that in a movie where they were like, this is pretty good. Like, this is pretty good CGI. Like, look what we did with this weird Duke Nukem 3D world. Uh, anyway, pretty funky. And that's what's fun are the CGI sequences. Because it's just, compared to today, it's adorable. It's like, oh, 
that's very sweet that you thought that this looked good. And for the time, it was it, sure it was revolutionary. Uh, it's like 3D figures and you know in a weird blocky, almost Tron 3D VR world. And uh, this Pierce Brosnan finds this dopey like groundskeeper guy played by uh, Jeff Fahey. Um, good actor, but this was not a good role. He plays this dopey, like, like, need the lawn mode? Like, it's it's pretty much that bad. It's that goofy. He's like this dummy with weird hair and a stupid wardrobe. It totally doesn't fit in the movie. And Pierce Brosnan is like, oh, you're an idiot human that no one will miss. Like, and he's like, oh, I'll take you and experiment on you with my VR machine. Well, that one gets away from you there, Pierce. Because the VR machine ends up Mr. Dummy uh, making him get super smart, like ridiculously smart, so that he starts to get all uh, existential and philosophical. And he's like, man needs to become one with machine, and we're puny humans who need to exist outside of time and, and unlock these potentials of the brain. And so he becomes super smart and Pierce is like, whoa, 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 whoa. okay, we got to get you off this VR machine. Like you need to go back to being dumb because you're becoming like this crazy socialist who's going to like become ruler of humanity. Uh, and this, it just goes down from there. And it's, it is long. It's two plus hours for a movie that absolutely should have been 90 tops. Um, it has got so much filler and this weird, stupid romance offshoot with the dummy and this absurdly gorgeous woman. Uh, it makes no sense. It would never happen. And it didn't need to be there. It adds nothing to the film. It's like very boring. It's like, get us back to the VR stuff and the scientist Pierce Brosnan. Um, and so it just then becomes this battle of wills between Pierce Brosnan and Jeff Fahey, who's become superhuman. And it's so silly and so bad. And it's like it doesn't really know what to be. It's a little bit horror thriller. It's a little sci-fi, but like hokey sci-fi. And uh, I mean, that one, weirdly, I enjoyed quite a bit. I probably won't watch it again other than just like highlights of the 3D sections because those are a blast, but weird little movie, weird little movie. If you want to see young Pierce Brosnan, if you like uh, bad sci-fi, go watch this one perhaps. And I think that's where we're going to call it. We're just over an hour here. Um, and you know, these may come periodically. I'm not sure, not too often. I certainly want to focus on the more serious, helpful stuff. And yeah, I know this is irreverent, inconsequential, probably not helpful, but I'm passionate about these things and I enjoy discussing them. And I, I don't really have anybody to talk about movies with currently, at least not to this depth. And I know this isn't a conversation. This is me talking at you, but um, it's, it's helpful to get these observations out and these thoughts about art and writing and creativity and just uh, the privilege that we get to enjoy really good films and really bad films and just even learn from them. And I keep a little journal where I just keep, keep track of in the back of my journal what I've seen throughout the year with the date and, the, and a rating because that, that almost is more like I, I want to remember what I've seen, but also that movies and the date and like what was going on at the time, those are memory cues for me. And that's, that's helpful with regular life too. But anyway, I just, I don't know if I'm serious about being a director, which I am and serious about being a writer. I, I need to pay attention to these things in order to tell good stories and it, not even I need to, I enjoy doing it and I wanted an outlet to talk about that. I don't know why I'm apologizing for this. I guess I'm not apologizing. I'm just over explaining. Thanks for listening to this. If you listen to this and next week we'll be back to the heavy stuff for you to improve your life. That's me, Josh Gates. Bye-bye.